Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11 with us again. We started a series on uh, the subject of faith a number of weeks ago, and uh, we've entitled this uh, The Key Elements to Faith. Now, the reason we talk about faith, and we talk a lot about faith in healing school, a lot of times people, first time they come to healing school, they say, well, we came to healing school expecting you to talk about healing and and, uh, minister healing, lay hands on the sick or do something like that, and you didn't do that, and instead you just talked about faith. Well, the reason for that is uh, the four Gospels give us 19 individual cases of healing in Jesus' ministry. Now, that doesn't count the multitudes that were healed. It doesn't count the, the, the groups like the ten lepers and so forth. But if you take the four Gospels and put them side by side, you'll find that there are 19 individual cases of healing. seems like there's more than that because many of the Gospels will record the same events. But there are 19. Count them for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Count them for yourself. 19 individual cases of healing in Jesus' ministry. Of those 19... Cases of healing in Jesus' ministry. Jesus who had the Spirit without measure, who had the anointing of God upon Him without limits. The Bible says that 13 of those 19 cases of healing, the people were healed directly because of the faith of the individual. Now, there are two other cases where faith is implied, and you can see it in action, although it's not called by name. So whichever way you want to look at that, either 13 out of the 19 cases of healing in Jesus' ministry were attributed to the individual's faith. Or if you want to add those other two where you can see faith in action but it doesn't name them, 15 out of the 19, you can see that the vast majority of people that were healed in Jesus' ministry were healed on their own faith. Well, why would we expect that that we would get different results today? We wouldn't. In other words, faith is a key ingredient for someone to receive their healing. So, we're talking about the subject of faith. We're looking at Mark chapter 11 which in my opinion give us the most concise scriptures and the concise, most concise information on the subject of faith from the lips of Jesus himself of anything that we have record of. Now this is not the, these scriptures are not the only thing, uh, the only ones that tell us about faith and give us uh, information about the subject. But these are, um, uh, are certainly, again in my opinion, the most concise record that we have. The story is that Jesus has cursed the fig tree the day before. He expected to find, leave, find, um, Figs on the tree because it had leaves. That's the way fig trees work over in the, uh, that part of the world. When there are leaves, there are figs. But he got there and it was leaves only and no figs. So he cursed the fig tree. He said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And the disciples heard him. The next morning they come walking by and they see the fig tree dried up in the roots. And Peter called it to Jesus' attention. And Jesus answering said, verse 22, Mark eleven twenty-two. Jesus answering said unto him, have faith in God. Now, one of the first things that we noticed, the first thing that we talked about relative to this, uh, this thing called faith is that it's the God kind of faith. Other translations translate verse 22 just exactly that way. Have the faith of God. Well, <clears throat> certainly Jesus being the Son of God is telling them that the way that the fig tree died, the way that the circumstance changed overnight was the operation of faith. If Jesus is the Son of God and He used faith, then it would have to be the faith of God, right? Because that's all He's got. He's God in the flesh. He used faith, so that would have to be the faith of God. So this is a a God kind or a God type of faith that the Bible speaks of. Now, the reason that we make that statement is because there are all kinds of different faith in the world. There's different kinds of faith, and most of the different kinds of faith that are operated in the world are based on your experience or your circumstance. For example, you came into the room and had faith that the chair would hold your weight. How many of you came to the chair and tested it out to see if it would hold your weight? No, your experience is 
When something looks sturdy, it usually is sturdy. So you just plopped your stuff up right down on the chair and sat down, didn't test it out. You had faith that the chair would hold you. Was that the God kind of faith or is that natural human faith? That's natural human faith. It's faith based on experience. Now, folks, the reason that we make the statement that the first key element is that faith that the Bible speaks of is the God kind of faith is because if you just try to operate faith according to your experience or that which your five physical senses tell you, you're not going to receive from God. When Jesus is saying, have the faith of God, he's saying, here's a different kind of faith. Peter's experience is, if the tree looked green yesterday, the tree will look green today. But a different kind of faith changed that circumstance. So the first thing we talked about is this, the God kind of faith. Now, right alongside with that, we talked about every believer, every person that makes Jesus the Lord of their lives, has a measure of that God kind of faith. Hebrews chapter, um, uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 3 says that, uh, that God, we're supposed to think soberly, not moved by emotion, but think soberly according as God has dealt to every man, every Christian, in other words, the measure of faith. Every one of us, when we're born again, gets the same measure of faith, the same measure of the God kind of faith. Now, what you do with it is up to you. So another key element is that that faith can be fed and exercised and grow. Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, and he said he commended them because their love uh, was growing and their faith grew exceedingly. We didn't tell that to the Ephesians. He didn't tell that to the Philippians. He said specifically to the Thessalonians that their faith was growing exceedingly. We talked about how faith grows. We talked about how that faith grows by exercising it, by feeding it on the Word and exercising it. The reason feeding on the Word is such an important thing is because there's only one way that faith comes, and that's by hearing the Word. Now, you can get natural faith from other sources. A lot of people have faith in the political system because they listen to, to politicians. A lot of people have faith in the business realm because they listen to businessmen. But if you want the God kind of faith, you're going to have to listen to God because that's where faith comes from. That's where that kind of faith comes from. So, Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. That's the only way that faith does come, folks, the God kind of faith. That's the only way that the God kind of faith comes. If you're listening to some other source, whether it's preaching, whether it's teaching, whether it's reading books, whether it's reading church doctrine, if you're listening to some source other than what God's word says, it's not going to grow and develop and build this God kind of faith which quite frankly is why the church is so weak in faith. We're hearing what everybody says about the Bible instead of reading the Bible for ourselves. We're hearing what everybody says about God instead of seeing what God tells us about Himself. We're hearing everything, anything and everything in the world except the Word of God. And the Word of God is the only thing that can bring, build, and develop faith. Now what else do we see? Well, let's keep reading in Mark chapter 11. We just read verse 21, have the God kind of faith. Verse 23 says... For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say. That means faith is for whosoever. I, tr I try to use this example because we, we hear this and know of this in other, other applications. Jesus did not say, Peter, don't you understand I'm the Son of God? Do not try this at home. He didn't say this is special to him. He didn't say it was unique to him. But he didn't say it was because of his place with God that it worked for him and won't work for anybody else. But that's what so many of the church world think. Jesus got the results he got because he was the son of God. Well, folks, this is a miraculous result. And Jesus said anybody can do it. That always gets a big response. Isn't that what he says? 
Verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. What is it telling us? It's telling us first and foremost that faith is of the heart. This God kind of faith is of the heart. Notice he says, Whosoever shall say and not doubt in his heart, but shall believe. Well, if he's talking about not doubting in his heart, then he's got to be talking about believing in the heart. Now, what does it mean to believe with the heart? We talked about this at some length. Believing with the heart means believing independent of your five physical senses. Believing God's Word, because that's the source of faith. Believing God's Word independent of what you see, independent of what you hear from the world, independent of what you feel by your circumstances, or any of the other things that have impact and influence on our five physical senses. Believing with the heart means believing only what God's Word says, no matter what the circumstances tell you. And folks, that's the condition for successful operation of faith. Whosoever shall say, again, notice verse 23. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain. So faith has something to do with what you say, right? Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. In other words, not be moved by his circumstances. Not be moved by the influence that the circumstances or external forces have on your five physical senses. Don't be moved by those things. He didn't say you have to ignore them. He didn't say you have to deny them. He said don't be moved by them. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in his heart. That means stick with what the Bible says. Continue to say what the Bible says no matter what the circumstances say. But shall believe in his heart that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. So what do we see about the God kind of faith? The God kind of faith is believing in the heart and saying with the mouth and getting what you say. Now notice there's not one word about prayer in verse 23. Verse 24, however, talks about prayer. Jesus is faithful to show us other areas that the God kind of faith will work. Therefore I say unto you, Mark 11, 24, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, What things soever you desire. Now, folks, I want you to notice verse 23 says it will work for whosoever. Verse 24 says it will work on whatever you want. Now, I've got to tell you, that's almost too simple. Because that's the point where you're going to have to find some kind of religious doctrine to explain this away. Because Jesus is very clear. Either Jesus is lying or this is an unfaithful translation. Because that's what it says. It says faith, the God kind of faith, works for whosoever shall say. Now there are conditions. Whosoever shall say unto the mountain. The mountain represents whatever unfruitful circumstances in your life. Just like the tree represented an unfruitful circumstance in Jesus' life. Jesus said it doesn't just work for trees. It works for even something as big as this mountain. Got any mountains of problems in your life? The God kind of faith will move them. So he said, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in his heart that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have. Not he might, not his chances are good. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Notice he didn't say you'll have whatever you believe. He said you'll have whatever you say. Folks, I would submit to you that what you have in your life is a result of what you've been saying. That'll make us check up, won't it? Then he says again in verse 24, we're right back to where we started. 
Verse 24, he said, Therefore, because this principle of faith is true, therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire. I love the fact that he didn't even say what things soever you need. Because the devil even, you get to the point where you start hearing the word of God, the devil says, yeah, well, okay, God will meet your needs. First he starts off and says, God's not going to help you at all. Then you find where the Bible says, my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4.19. When you find that, then the devil will give up ground. He'll say, yeah, well, okay, God will meet your needs. But don't even think that he's going to do anything about what you want. I mean, he'll just barely get you by on the need stuff. Yet Jesus said the God kind of faith works on what things soever you desire. I wonder how much of the church is doing without because they're afraid to desire. You can get real humble about these things. And get real religious about these things. Oh, well, I, I don't want to ask God for too much. Why? Where did Jesus say what things soever you desire unless it's too much? Where did Jesus say what things soever you desire? But boy, you better be careful because there is a real fine line on that and you cross that line and you're over into greed, you're over into selfishness, you're over into all those kind of things that God will slap you down for. Well, that's religion that tells you that. My Bible tells me that if you delight yourself in the Lord, God will put His desires on the inside of you. Folks, I'm here to tell you, if you've got God's desires on the inside of you, if you've got God's desires in your heart because of reading and feeding on and meditating in the Word of God, you're not thinking about barely getting by. Because the Bible says the thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness. But to them that are hasty, them that are lazy where the Word is concerned, only to want or lack. What do you think? Do you think about having enough? Do you think about what you don't have? The Bible will identify you. It will categorize you based on the things that you think about. You get God's desires on the inside of you, you'll think only toward plenteousness. You'll realize that God's not El Chipo just trying to get you by. You'll realize He's El Shaddai, the God that's more than enough. So Jesus said, Therefore I say unto you, again, verse 24. I don't know if we'll ever finish verse 24. Verse 24, we're just covering ground we've already covered. Verse 24, therefore I say unto you, what thing soever you desire. The devil will always be there to tell you you're desiring too much. The devil will always be right there saying, oh, that's too much, that's too much. Test God and see. Take his word at his, at, at, take him at face value. Take him at his word. Now remember, believing in your heart is believing according to what the Bible says, not according to what the devil tells you about the Bible. Not according to what the church or religion tells you about scriptures, which ones belong to you and which ones don't, but believing according to what God said. So again, verse 24, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray. First word mentioned about prayer. First word. Now what does that tell us? Verse 23 tells us faith will work just by saying and not praying. Now verse 24 is telling us here's another key element of faith, and that is prayer wor or faith works either by saying or by praying. The reason it works by praying is because you have to say when you pray. And that's why Jesus said, therefore I say unto you. In other words, because faith works by the spoken word, it'll work by you speaking to the mountain or it'll work by you talking to God in prayer. Words are spoken both ways. What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, meaning the things that you desire, 
and you shall have them. Now, there's another key element that we won't get to quite tonight. I was planning to do it tonight, but I had on my heart to move on to something else, and we'll come back to this. But we'll just make mention of it since we're right there in verse 24. The God kind of faith in prayer. Now, notice the distinction I make. The God kind of faith in prayer believes that receives the answer when it prays. Not when it sees the answer, but when it prays. But I want to go on to something else. I want to go on to another key element tonight and talk about something that was on my heart. And that's in verse 25. Notice that usually we'll stop reading with verse 24 and talk about faith and the operation of faith. But I want to bring up verse 25 because it is one of the absolute key elements, critical elements of faith. Jesus goes on to say, and when you stand praying, forgive. Now, has he changed subjects? He starts talking about prayer in verse 24. Up until then, he was talking about the God kind of faith. Verse 24 is when he starts telling us about how faith works in prayer. He's still talking about prayer. So verse 25, he says, and when you stand praying, meaning praying for your desires, praying the prayer of faith for the things that you desire, and when you stand praying, forgive. If you have ought. Now, what does the word ought mean? It means anything. See, most Christians will think it's okay to have a little something against somebody, but not something big. He said, and when you stand praying, forgive if you have ought, anything, no matter how big, no matter how small, anything against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Why in the world is he talking about forgiveness? Because Jesus is being faithful to show us a very, very important element of the God kind of faith, and that is unforgiveness is the number one thing the number one hindrance, the number one aspect of life that will keep your faith from working. In other words, he's saying you can believe you receive, but if you're not walking in forgiveness, it won't work. He's saying you can go through all the mechanics, you can go through all the principles of faith, you can keep every one of these key elements, but if you're not walking in forgiveness, it won't work. It won't work. When I was working with Brother Hagin, we had, uh, I'm not sure which year it was, but it was during camp meeting. Camp meeting was always the last full week of July, and uh, still is. They still continue it, even though Brother Hagin's gone to be with the Lord. They continue it and uh, have it on, uh, on the campus of the school there in Tulsa, or outside of Tulsa in Broken Arrow. But uh, in those days, we had it down at the convention center in, um, uh, in the middle of town. And uh, there was a lady that came to us and shared with us uh, her story at the end of the week. Brother Hagin was teaching... Uh, some in the mornings, and uh, then he would uh, swap off with uh, uh, some others uh, for the evening services. And so, uh, but, but he had on his heart, it was something that was really unusual for him to do during camp meeting. Usually he had guest speakers and stuff, but uh, the lineup that he had, Brother Hagin had a regular teaching time during the morning. He really had on his heart that he was supposed to teach on faith. And so one morning, early in the, in the week, he had uh, encouraged people that had come to um, uh, to that uh, week of uh, services, expecting to have hands laid on them, he asked everybody up front, he said, now, let me, let me encourage you. We want to get the best results for you that we can get. And we found that you get better results if you can get people to hear the word over a series of days or series of services rather than just taking, coming in, taking one shot, going to get the hands laid on you, and then that's it. And so this lady had come. Uh, she had had some uh, respiratory issues and, and um, digestive issues, and uh, the doctors had, uh, had given her things and had been treating her, and she was on some medication and so forth. But she came that week expecting 
uh, Brother Hagin to hand, lay hands on her and, and, and hoping to receive her healing. And so she heard what Brother Hagin said up front uh, one of the first nights of the service. And so she said, well, I'm going to be here all week. I'll do that. I want the best results I can get, so I'll just be in all these services, particularly Brother Hagin asked them to be in the morning services where they could hear the teaching. And uh, she said, then the last night of the, the meeting, then I'll go ha- lay ha- have la- hands laid on me, and, um, and we'll just do it the way he suggested. So she's been there all week. She's a real nice lady. She came up to the books table every, every day, and she'd strike up conversations with us back there, and, and just real nice lady, real sweet. She was from uh, Kansas, I think it was, and so she had driven uh, however many hundreds of miles that was from Kansas to, uh, to Tulsa. And, uh, and Brother Hagen. Uh, about, um, oh, I don't know, I guess this was about Friday. Uh, the, meeting start, the camp meeting services started on Monday, and so this was about Friday after the morning service. Brother Hagin got to talking about uh, walking in love and walking in forgiveness. He told the story about how there was a guy that was um, uh, real well-to-do in a, in a uh, pastor friend of his church. And there was, uh, this guy put in more money than anybody else in church, and and uh, they were coming up to where they were going to build a new building. And, and so there were some different ideas among the board about how they, you know, what, what should this look like? What's the, the type of architecture? We've, we've got one architect that's saying, oh, I can uh, provide a real nice colonial style. And another one said, I can provide an, uh, an, uh, an updated, you know, more contemporary style and that type of thing. Well, most of the board wanted to do the colonial style. But this guy wanted to do something different. And he said, I'm the one who's putting more money into it than anybody else, so I ought to have my say. Well, you know, that the pastor could see there was going to be a rift here between the, the group. And so he said, well, he said, you know, this is, uh, we appreciate every dollar that you put in. And, and we do recognize that, uh, that you're wealthier than the rest of us and are able to put in more than, than the rest of us. But the, the church is, belongs to the people. It doesn't belong to you or me or anybody else. It belongs to the people. So why don't we do this? Why don't we take both ideas and present it to the people and see what they vote on? Let the people choose. And so everybody, nine out of ten, you know, voted for the colonial style. And so this guy got upset and he said, well, I'm just pulling out. I'm not going to put my money into it. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just out of here. So he did. He pulled out of the church. They had to stop the building program. Had to stop all the plans on the thing. Had to just, everything just died right there because without his finances, uh, they wouldn't be able to continue. And he knew that. That had a lot to do with him pulling out. Well, over a process of time, about 18 months later, he winds up contracting this uh, very, very serious illness. And as soon as he got sick, as soon as he got sick, he starts, you know, his wife is still going to church. He won't go anymore, but his wife is going to church and and, uh, she's asking the church to pray and and all this kind of stuff. And she asks her husband, can I bring the pastor by here? Can I I do this? Can we get the elders to come and anoint you with oil? And he said, no, uh, don't let them step foot in my house. I refuse to let them in my house. And so he continues on this way, and finally the doctor says, this has gone too far. There's nothing we can do for you anymore. You've got about, uh, you know, three, three to six months to live. And, well, his wife's all distraught, and, you know, what are we going to do? Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? We're going to... She goes to a church. He used to go to a church that believes in healing, but, but now this terrible thing has happened. What are we going to do? Well, the, the, the guy that was sick, he saw his wife in such distress, and he said, all right. I guess I've had enough of this. He said, here's what we're going to have to do. He knew immediately. He's known all along. He said, here's what we're going to have to do. He said, I want you to get the pastor over here, and I want you to get the church board over here, and I want you to bring everybody that was involved with this thing, this building program and everything, everybody that I said anything to. He named them all. He said, bring them over here. He said, I've got to apologize to every one of them. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. 
He knew what the problem was because he's got the witness of God on the inside. The Bible says that your conscience is the voice of your own spirit and God will lead you to do that which is right by your own conscience. You know as well as I do when you and I step outside of love. It's our conscience that tells us we did the wrong thing. Now, if you ignore that over a period of time, you'll fail to hear the voice of your own spirit anymore. That's why you've got to be sensitive to your own conscience. You've got to be sensitive to the voice of your spirit. So he told his wife what to do, and she did. She arranged for everything. She was all excited. Oh, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Now we're going to get all this straightened up. She's not thinking about healing. She's just thinking we'll straighten all this up and fix up the relationship, and then maybe the pastor will pray. So she gets over everybody over there, and so the guy's propped up in bed. He's uh, been bed fast now for a little while. And so he props up in bed, and he says, all right. He said, gentlemen, he said, I've got to apologize. He said, I was treating the church like it belonged to me. He said, I was trying to have my own way, and I was wrong, absolutely wrong. I shouldn't have done this, Pastor. I'm so sorry. I apologize. I apologize to each one of you members on the board. Well, the pastor had uh, been told by the wife that, uh, you know, what was what to expect, and here's what he said, and all this kind of stuff. So the pastor came, and, and he brought a bottle of oil, and he was planning to anoint him with oil. The pastor got so excited that this guy apologizing, saying, I'll come back, I'll help, I'll do all this kind of stuff. We'll, we'll go back just like it was before. pastor got so excited, instead of anointing, he just dumped this oil all over him, in, laying in bed. Well, the, the, the presence of God filled the room, raised this guy up. He was instantly healed. And it started a, a six-month revival in the church. I wonder what the church could do if more people would walk in forgiveness. Now, you may be sitting there saying, oh, I, the very idea, I can't believe that somebody would act as, as childish and as unforgiving as that guy did. Listen, I've seen people come to church, our church, and won't talk to people in the room. I mean, there are certain people, they'll sit on the other side of the room and absolutely won't have any fellowship with them. And they think they're going to get something from God while they're here. Good luck with that. Folks, walking in love is a key. It's a key ingredient. That's what Jesus is telling us in Mark eleven twenty five. 25. And when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anybody. Well, Brother Hagin had told that story. You remember the woman that came to camp meeting? Don't forget her. She's got the respiratory ailments and the digestive problems. She heard Brother Hagin tell the story, and she said, well, I know what I've got to do. Now, she's relating this story to us after the fact. She says, I know what I've got to do. She said 20 years ago, she told us later, she said 20 years ago when my mother died, my brother and I had fallen out. 20 years. Both of them raised and and attending a Pentecostal church, hadn't talked to each other for 20 years. So she told us that she left that service on her way to lunch. She stopped. There was a phone booth there just right outside the convention center. She got on this phone booth, uh, uh, you know, got to the phone booth and called her brother. And she had to call Collect because she didn't have the money to, or, you know, didn't operate on credit cards like things do nowadays and stuff. So she put in a Collect call to her brother. Well, her brother was so excited to hear from her, surprised and excited to hear from her, he accepted the charges. And she immediately started saying, listen, I am so sorry that I had to call you Collect, but there was no other way I could get a hold of you right away. I want you to forgive me. I was so wrong. I did this. I did that. I shouldn't have. Please, please forgive me. Well, he was so excited. He started saying, well, it's not your fault. It was all my fault. And, and they got an argument about whose fault it was. They finally settled on 50-50, made plans to see each other, connect with one another. She said, I'll send you the money. I'm so sorry for the collect call. And, oh, don't you worry about that. I'm so glad to hear from you, blah, blah, blah. They just slobbered all over themselves on the phone. And so after it was over, 
She finished the phone call, hung up the phone, felt real good about having made things right with her brother that she should have done years and years and years ago. And so she said she went there to, uh, uh, from the, the phone call to, uh, to lunch. Well, there were some afternoon meetings, but she was a little tired, and so she went back to the room and laid down for a nap. Well, actually, I think she went to the afternoon, the early afternoon meeting, and then after that she went back to her hotel room and she laid down for a nap before the evening service. She's got it all planned. Tonight's my night to go have my hands laid on me. I've got everything out of the way. Now I'm ready to receive my healing. She woke up from her nap to get ready for the service and couldn't find anything wrong. Her respiratory problems were gone. Her digestive problems were gone. She said, I started looking for something to get prayed for. Because the thing I came to town to get prayed for were gone. Both of those ailments, both of those conditions were, were gone. She said, I didn't even get to, she was telling us after the fact. She said, I didn't even get, get to get in the healing line for Brother Hagen to lay hands on me because nothing's wrong now. Well, we told that story to Brother Hagen, related the story to Brother Hagen. And then she wrote a letter and confirmed it and gave him some of the details and some of the ins and outs and stuff. And, and it just thrilled everybody. Because once she got in forgiveness, she opened herself up to receive from God. That's what Jesus is telling us, folks. Jesus is telling us in Mark eleven twenty five. he says, you've got to keep the channel open by walking in love. Now, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6 is, a, is a, another um, proof text for this. It says, for in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision. Well, if being circumcised, which signifies you're a child of Abraham, if that doesn't matter with God, He's writing to the Gentiles, not the Jews. He's saying if being circumcised doesn't matter to God or being uncircumcised doesn't matter to God, then what does matter to God? He says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith which works by love. Now, what does that mean? It means if faith works by love, faith won't work without love. And forgiveness is step number one to walking in love. Now turn with me to another proof text. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Turn with me to another proof text over in James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Here's the only instruction that's given to the local church about healing. Doesn't mean it's the only thing for us to know. But here's the only instruction about praying for the sick in the local church. And James is the one that gives it to us because James is a pastor. So he's writing to the other Hebrew Christians that are scattered abroad to other cities saying, here's how your church services should operate where healing is concerned. He says, we'll start reading in verse 13. He says, is any among you afflicted? The word afflicted means test, trial, or trouble. Is anybody going through a hard place or a hard time, in other words? Well, here's the answer. Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Then the third thing he says, is any sick among you? Now, folks, the question is asked in such a way that there shouldn't be many sick among us. Because he doesn't say, now, for all that big bunch of folks down among you that are sick, here's what you do. He says, is any sick among you? Now, why does he ask it that way? Because he's inspired by the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Ghost knows whether Christians do or not. The Holy Ghost knows that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we're healed. The Holy Ghost knows that the church, the people of God, the family of God should be a sickness-free place for people. Now, folks, when you understand that, all this idea about why does God allow sickness, that goes out the window. 
God allows what you allow. God allows people to go to hell if that's, what, if that's the choice they make. God allows Christians to be sick if that's the choice they make. Knowing full well, God, knowing full well that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes were healed. But if it's okay with you to be sick, God will allow it. You're the one that decides, not him. That's why James is saying, here's the action to take. Is any sick among you? Let them, the sick, call for the elders of the church, and or let him, the, the sick, call for the elders of the church, and let them, the elders, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Now, isn't that what Jesus was telling us about in Mark eleven twenty four? The prayer of faith? Therefore I say unto you, when, uh, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. Well, in this case, we know what the desire would be, and that is a desire for a well body. He tells you how to get it. When you pray, believe that you receive a well body, and you shall have a well body. James continues, he says, in the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. He didn't say might, he says shall. Shall save or heal the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. Thank God that's God's responsibility, not yours. That's God's part of it. Your part is to believe you receive. God's part is to raise you up. And the Lord shall raise him up. Now notice this phrase, and if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. What is he telling us? He's telling us that the same prayer that heals the sick forgives sins. Now, didn't Jesus tell us in Mark chapter 11 and verse 25 that unforgiveness is something you have to guard against to keep your faith active and working and effective? Well, then, if he's forgiven, if he's committed sins, would certainly include unforgiveness then, wouldn't it? We know that because of what he goes on to say in verse 16. He goes on to say in verse 16, confess your faults one to another. Now, can I ask you a question? Is he talking about confession like the Roman Catholic Church does? Is he talking about find somebody and just bear your soul and, boy, I mean, just dump it out there? No. The Bible says Jesus is our high priest. So if you've got something to talk to, to God about or relate to God on behalf of your wrongdoings, that would be to Jesus. That's why 1 John 1, 9 says, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness when we confess them to Him. So why is He saying confess your faults to each other? He's talking about what, Mar- what Matthew chapter 18 talks about, and that is this. If your brother trespasses against you, go to him, just you and him alone, and tell him what the problem is. Work it out together. If he hears you, you've gained your brother back. Here he's talking about confessing your faults, meaning if you've got aught against any, fix it, clear it up, make it right. Make sure there's no opportunity for unforgiveness on, par- on the part of you who may have done something against someone or had something done against you or the other guy, whichever side of the coin he's on. He's saying, make sure to clear it up. What will occur when we operate that way? Confess your faults one for another and pray one for another that you may be healed. He's saying, stay in forgiveness. Keep walking in love. Don't let anything pull you out. Now, folks, this is such an important issue. Walking in forgiveness is such an important issue regarding healing. You'll see some things taking place in the body of Christ today. There's a, uh, there's a resurgence of healing rooms. Now, the, the, any of you ever heard of the healing rooms? Okay, let me tell you where that comes from. 
That comes from John Lake's operation in Seattle, Washington. In, uh, in the early part of the, the, um, or the, yeah, the early part of the 1900s, after John Lake uh, had his uh, missionary work to Africa and, and changed the continent, his wife died on the mission field, and so his kids were young. And so Lake brought his children back to America because he didn't have a wife. He didn't have anybody to look after his kids. So he left the mission field and left the tremendous work that's, uh, that's still going on, still remnants of his work down there today in uh, South Africa. So he brought his kids back to America. He got remarried while he was in Spokane. And, uh, and he started healing rooms. He took the same word, the same preaching, the same authority that he had been operating in in Africa, and now he starts these healing rooms in Spokane, Washington. There are fi- over 500,000 documented cases of healings that took place in those healing rooms. The newspapers would write about them. The newspapers would write about healings and miracles and things like that that would take place as a result of it. It was pronounced that Spokane was the, 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 the healthiest city in all of America because of John Lake's healing rooms. Now, you couldn't find things like that in the newspapers today. I mean, newspapers don't, don't, you know, that's good news. You don't hear anything like that. But back in the early days, you know, many, many years ago, things like that would be reported, and they were. And so people would come from all over the country to Spokane, Washington, to get in Lake's healing rooms. Well, there's been a lot of, of uh, uh, interest, as you could well understand, about how he conducted his healing rooms and, and, and the way they operated and things like that. And so somebody came up with the idea, not, uh, I don't know, six or eight years ago now, I guess, maybe. They came up with the idea that they're going to revitalize and, and resurrect Lake's healing rooms. And so they're going to try to do the same things that he did and, and all this kind of stuff. Well, what has happened is this. What has happened in the majority of those healing rooms, and please understand, folks, I'm not trying to criticize anybody. I just want you to know how things are, Okay. So there may be somebody operating in healing rooms or calling something healing rooms that aren't doing what I'm talking about. That's fine. And even if they are doing what I'm talking about, that's between them and God. I'm not, they're not my servant. They're not bound to judge. But I'm interested in people getting healthy. Okay? So this is not meant as a criticism. I'm just telling you what I know about. Uh, so what has happened a lot of times in the healing rooms is they're trying to have the healings without the teaching of the Word. They don't realize the years that Lake put in and the teaching of the word that he did that was the foundation for these healing rooms and the healing technicians, what he called healing technicians, guys that he trained in the word that would go in and pray with people and pray over people according to what the Bible said rather than just say these prayers that had no scriptural foundation. And so what's happened, at least to my, to my knowledge, in some of the healing rooms, not everywhere, but in some places... What's happened is people are, are coming in without a knowledge of what the Word says about healing. They're coming in without a scriptural foundation for healing, and they're just praying about people being well. Well, folks, you start praying without a foundation of the Word, and God's not the only one you're going to hear from in your prayer. Folks, Jesus did something in obedience to the Father and went on a 40-day fast. And the first voice he heard was the devil. You need to realize, everything that we do should have, ought to have a scriptural foundation. Otherwise, you're going to hear things. Paul said himself, he said, there's a lot of voices out there. And none of them are without signification. That doesn't mean all of them are right. He said, every one of those voices can be significant, so you're going to have to know the word to be able to judge. Jesus said, take heed what you hear. Well, what does he mean? Just take heed what people tell you? No, he says, take heed what you hear. That means the thoughts that come to your mind, too. Bring every thought captive to the Word of God. 
And so what's happened, at least in, in the, the limited experience I've had with some of the healing rooms, is people have come to me and said, well, I've been to the healing room and they started praying and then, they, then, the, then it turned into a prophesying thing. And folks, you need to understand, prayer that's not based on the word, continued prayer that's not based on the word will always turn into a prophesying meeting. And a lot of the thus saith the Lord is not the Lord saying. And so then they go from the prophesying meeting to looking for sins in people's lives. Because that's always what the devil will lead you to do. And folks, the devil will put on a show. He'll do all kinds of supernatural things to put on a show if you're open to it and not aware of what the Bible says to control it. And so what's happened is so many times, and, and you, there's a lot of books out there now where people are saying that the key to healing is to find the unforgiveness in your life. Well, there's an element of truth to that, isn't it? Just like the woman that came to camp meeting. The key for her receiving her healing was to find the unforgiveness in her life. But it's not like she had to look for it. Once she saw the importance of walking in forgiveness, she knew immediately. What about the guy that was the board member in the church that had the falling out with the rest of the church over the church building program and stuff? What about him? He didn't have to go searching for it. He knew instantly what he had to do. You start looking for it. Oh, but doesn't the Bible say, didn't David say, Lord, cleanse me from secret sins? Well, I don't know about you, but I don't have any secret sins. I'm always there when I sin. There's no secret about it. And because I am a child of God, whenever I sin, my conscience is right there to tell me, you blew that. You messed up. You need to make that right. I don't let them stack up. So I'm not worried about forgetting something that I did wrong. And folks, that's the way we're supposed to live. The Bible never commands you to be perfect in the sense that you never fall, but as soon as you fall, the Bible does tell you to make it right, fix it. These people that are talking about secret sins are people that aren't in fellowship with God to begin with. Well, what do you do about that? Ask God to forgive you once and for all and get back in fellowship with Him. Now you're back to even. There's no secret sin stuff anymore. If there's something you need to fix... Your heart will tell you. You don't have to go looking for it. don't have to go searching for it. Brother Hagin told a story once that uh, really got, grabbed my attention. First time I'd ever heard this, this phrase used. He said that, um, uh, that when his mother died, there was, uh, or I'm sorry, when his grandfather died, there was some property that was left, and, and, um, and he had family members, cousins and uncles and, and that kind of stuff, that um, they were all concerned that his mother, Brother Hagin's mother, was going to get a bigger share of the inheritance than they would because uh, she had lived with them and, and she had had some, uh, some problems, had a nervous breakdown, and so she and, and uh, some of her kids had lived there at the, at the house with them. And uh, so they were afraid that, that he would treat her, Brother Hagin's mother, better than, than they would get out of it. And so that was a big undercurrent and some things going on behind the scenes. Brother Hagin's older brother, Dub, uh, uh, related a story to him about this stuff that was going on and, hey, I just went down and visited... Uh, uh, Mima's place, and 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 here's what Uncle so and so said, and here's what they said, and and man, I just I did everything I could just to have to walk away without whipping the whole bunch. Well, Brother Hagen related something to Dub in in talking about that, and said, "Oh, Dub," he said, "I'll go down there and take care of that." He said, "Why in the world did you go stir the thing up?" He said, "You shouldn't have gone down there to begin with." And Dub said, "Oh no," he called him Honey, that was his nickname because he was so frail and stuff as a kid. He said, oh, honey, don't you go down there. Don't you go down there. They'll whip you. Oh, they'll just, they'll just mop up the floor with you. And Brother Hagin made this statement. He made this comment. He said, oh, Dub. He said, you're just a baby Christian. You don't know how to use the love of God as a weapon. 
I thought, love is a weapon? Whoa. Now he's not talking about a weapon against other people. He's talking about a weapon against the devil. So Brother Hagin went down there and he handled the situation. Just absolutely handled the situation, took care of it. His uncle came and Brother Hagin said, I knew my uncle was the one behind all of it. And he came and he acted like he was real concerned and said, you know, Brother Hagin, he said, uh, or, or whatever he called him, you know, his nickname for him. He said, you know, he said, there are other family members that want to cut your mom out of this. Want to, want to make sure that she doesn't get her share. And, and Brother Hagin said, he stepped up real close to him and he says, oh, uncle, he said, listen, he said, don't you worry about that. I've got inside information. Of course, Brother Hagin's talking about inside information in the Bible. He said, after I finished talking to him, spent a few more minutes talking to him, he said, everybody bent over backwards to make sure my mama got her share. Because he used the love of God. He used the love of God. That puzzled me. Because I'd never heard it talked about like that. I'd never heard it referred to like that. But it really, really puzzled me. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. I had an experience some years later after the church was in the middle of our building program. And, and those of you that were here in those days, you know what a terrible time we had. I mean, there were lawsuits, contractors filed lawsuits against us and, and, and all kinds of things. It was just the work of the devil. Baptist churches don't have trouble building, building buildings. I mean it. I'm serious. Baptist churches, even in our town, don't have the same trouble with the building and planning department that we had. If I told them I'm a, I was a Methodist church, I'd have sailed through. But it was the devil raising up his head trying to stop us, trying to keep us from going forward because he knew we were going to preach the Word. He knew there were things that were going to happen. He knew this day was coming where we'd have a bigger influence just than our, our walls would reach. And so he was trying to stop that and nip it in the bud. And so there came a point in time during the middle of this, and, and uh, without boring you with, with a lot of the details, and, and I don't even like to remember some of them, but um, uh, it, we, we came up on a, the... the building program, the problems and the, the lawsuits and that kind of stuff. It took five and a half years for that mountain to move. God never promised it'd move overnight. He just said it would obey your words. Well, it took five and a half years for that thing to move. And in the middle of that, or, or well, the latter end of it, but, but somewhere toward the middle, there was a point in time where the contractor had operated um, without any shred of integrity whatsoever had falsified some of the records, had falsified some of the work, claimed work that he never did, did a lot of things without doing the, well, like drywall. If you put drywall up without putting studs behind it, it looks like everything's done, but there's no work that's really been done. There was a lot of that that was taking place so that they could claim to the arbitrator that they did things they didn't do. Well, just about to, just before we went to, uh, to arbitration over this thing, I was trying to work things out with the contractor. There was really no reason for them to have the trouble that they were having on the job. They wound up getting upside down, and there was, uh, there was a rainy period that, that they hadn't counted on, and so uh, they had spent a lot more money on their own people than they planned to, and, and so they were, they were in the hole where the job was concerned. And so they said uh, that they were going to pull out. They had done a lot of this eyewash-type work, uh, like the, the drywall without stuff behind it and stuff like that. And so, um, uh, so we had a big meeting. It was one of those come-to-Jesus things, look, we've got to make this work. And uh, so I'm sitting there with uh, our attorney, and uh, our building consultant, 
We had a guy that knew more about building than I did that was helping us through and would look over the bills and, and the contracts and some of those kinds of things. We're all sitting there at the table, and on the other side of the table is the contractor. They've got their attorney there. And, and I'm just saying, well, look, why don't we move forward on this thing? I don't understand. How are you guys going to come out better on this by stopping and pulling the plug? Let's see if we can make this thing work. If we need to renegotiate something, if we need to, to, to throw a little bit more money in there for this thing to make you right and, and make you whole on this, okay, we can work something out. Let's work this out. I'm just trying to make things work. And so anyway, the guy said, uh, uh, on the other side of the table, the guy said, well, there's one thing that we need to do. We need you to sign this piece of paper saying that the delays are not our fault, but they're your fault. Well, everybody on our side is saying, well, we're not going to do that. Why would we do that? We're not going to do that. And, and I knew as soon as he said that, I knew this was a legal thing that he was trying to do to try to get his way so that they could do something with the courts rather than try to work this thing out. I knew it. I knew it just as much as I knew my name. Our building guy looked over at me and he said, Pastor Mike, whatever you do, do not sign that piece of paper. So we sat there. I really didn't say anything. I let everybody argue back and forth. And then finally, the, uh, uh, the, the head guy for the contractor he said, well, look, he said, this didn't get anywhere. He said, Pastor Mike, why don't you and I meet privately? Well, I knew what that was about. I knew it was him trying to get me to do something that, uh, that would be contrary to our best interest and his interest and not ours. And so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, okay, let's go meet privately. I mean, I, I don't care. Meeting with a group of people, meeting privately, doesn't make any difference. So I'm sitting there and the, and the Lord spoke to me. We sat down in the other room, went to a side room, sat down in the other room, and I said, look, I just want to make this thing work. What can we do to make this work? He said, the only thing we can do to make this work is for you to sign that piece of paper. I said, well, what are you going to do if I sign the piece of paper? He said, we'll start back work tomorrow. I said, I have your word on that? He said, yeah, absolutely. And the Lord spoke to me and said, give him what he wants. Now, he's telling me all these things, and I'm having an argument. I'm ha- I don't even hear what he's saying. I'm fighting on the inside of me, saying, wait a minute, if I give him this, then he's going to say everything was our fault. He's going to use this as an opportunity to get more money out of the church or maybe even file a lawsuit against the church. We already had a lawsuit going with another contractor. I know how this stuff works now. And you're telling me, Lord, to give him what he wants? Why in the world would I want to do that? Now, folks, I could give you a bunch of scriptures that would give me a foundation not to do something like that. For example, the Bible tells us that, uh, that Elijah would be warned by God where the enemies of Israel were going to come from. And so he would tell the king of Israel so that the king would be ready for an ambush. There's over and over and over and over again, David, time and time again, the Bible would tell us about how God would warn the, the Israel about what their enemies were going to do so they could prepare against them and be ready for them and not fall into their trap over and over and over again. And I'm sitting there saying, Lord, you want me to fall into their trap? You're telling me to sign the paper? And give them what they want. And the Lord doesn't say a word. You ever found that when the Lord tells you something to do, whether you like it or whether you don't, it's still up to you? So I'm saying, I can't do this. No, I can't do this. Uh Uh-uh. Nope, can't do it. Uh Uh-uh. Not going to do it. It would would not be a good steward as the pastor of the church to do that. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. Lord's not trying to talk to me. He's not trying to talk me into anything. He's already told me what to do. And I know that I know that I know the Lord has spoken to me. I know the voice of the Lord. I know that was God telling me. I know that when the devil speaks to me. I know what the result of it is. I know this is God telling me what to do. And I'm saying, I, I no. I absolutely know. 
I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Well, he's continuing to talk, and he's doing his best to persuade me and all this kind of stuff, and he's, you know, he's playing good cop, bad cop kind of thing, you know, split personality thing, trying to tell me here's how it will be to my benefit, and here's, here's what will happen if we don't, and all this kind of stuff. You don't want to go to a lawsuit, and you don't want to do this, and, and you can avoid all that. By, I'm not listening to a word, he says. I'm having this fight with God on the inside. I finally just said, no, I'm not doing it. No, Lord, no, absolutely, no. Now, get what I'm saying. Lord, no. Those two things really can't be said in the same sentence, folks. If he's Lord, then it's yes. If it's no, he ain't Lord. And right on the inside, just still small voice, I heard on the inside, a man of faith takes what's left. Now, I know where that comes from. You remember when Abraham and and, uh, Lot, his nephew Lot, grew and, and uh, multiplied, the flocks and the herds multiplied to such a degree that the, that the Bible says the land couldn't sustain them both. So their, their servants started fighting among each other. And, um, you know, fighting for, for grazing land, fighting over the water, fighting over all the kinds of things that they needed to do to take care of the flocks and the herds. Abraham went to Lot and he said, look, this isn't right. There's no reason for your people to fight against my people and vice versa. He said, we've got the whole land. God told us we, the whole land belongs to me. So you go wherever you want to, and I'll take whatever's left. You want to go that way, I'll go this way. You want to go that way, I'll go this way. Folks, a man of faith takes what's left. A man of faith never tries to dictate how it's going to be to his own advantage. And that's what the Lord said to me. A man of faith takes what's left. Well, I know. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. So without saying another word, without him saying another word, I reached over and I signed the paper. He grabbed that paper as soon as my signature was on it and ran out, ran into the other room, said, we got him, guys. We got him. We got him. Had no intention to ever start working again. Knew he wouldn't. Had no intention to do anything except use that against the church. Now, folks, that paper, that paper was the key ingredient, the key element for him and the contractor, I mean, to win the lawsuit against the church. Cost us $400,000 to them, plus almost another half million dollars with the lawyers. That piece of paper by itself, well, not by itself, but it was, it was one of the, the things that they built their case on, was one of the ingredients that cost the church almost a million dollars. I can't tell you how I kicked myself. I kicked myself back and forth. I kicked myself up one street and down the next street. I, I'm, 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 I almost quit the church, almost resigned the church over. And I'm complaining, I'm whining, I'm saying, oh, God, why in the world? And the Lord said one thing to me. He said, Mike, I told you what to do, didn't I? And I said, yeah, Lord, but look at what it's cost us. He said, I didn't send you here to save money. I sent you here to save people. Now, folks, let me, you think I've digressed. That action that I took was the foundation of walking in love that caused the mountain to move. Now, they think they won. They thought they won. Boy, I mean, they had a high heel time. Celebrate party. But in the next five years, everybody involved in that thing either lost their business, they lost their family, they lost their health, and or they lost their life. You can't find one person left out of all that group that won. And where are we? Sailing straight ahead. Folks, Winning in faith, 
succeeding in faith doesn't always mean that it looks like you win. It means you always have the word to go back on. I recognize, and the Lord spoke to me about this years later, and I never was, I wouldn't have been able to hear it at the time. But the Lord reminded me, remember Brother Hagin saying to Dub, you don't know how to use love as a weapon? He said, that day when you signed the paper, just because you obeyed me, you use love as a weapon. And that's the reason why your church will be blessed. Folks, faith works by love. Faith works by love. Faith works by love. Don't let anything get you out of love. And don't put your own interpretation on what love always looks like. Love looks like what the Bible says, not what we think. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to walk in love. Thank you, Lord, that the mountain must move when we speak. Because we speak your word. Thank you, Father, that when we pray, we believe we receive the things that we desire. And hell itself can't stop them. Oh, Father, thank you for proving yourself faithful. Thank you for showing yourself strong. Thank you for proving that you're the God that's more than enough. You're bigger than money. You're bigger than people that give us money. You're bigger than anything that there is, Lord. Oh, what a privilege it is to serve you and to live by faith. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.